a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. There is probably no one else on the radio here in Utah. Well, that might be true. I think Clerk of Potion has himself a show someplace. Uh, there, there are very few voices as uh, as loudly supportive of uh, firearms rights and Second Amendment rights uh, than me. I was raised with firearms in the home. Uh, My dad taught me gun safety. Uh, We were out hunting when I was very young. I uh, have, for for most of my life, uh, been the owner of firearms. I have, uh, you know, pursued different areas of firearms. I've even uh, come to build a few myself. Uh, When I was in Washington, D.C., one of my jobs was to advise on Second Amendment policy. Uh, I uh, I gave advice to to members of Congress, uh, mostly Rob Bishop, as he cast votes and uh, submitted legislation on firearms and guns in the Second Amendment. And so it is uh, no small thing when I share with you a piece of legislation passed in the late 90s uh, that that is uh, effectively uh, a ban on guns for certain people. Yeah, fed- federal legislation. Federal legislation. It's called the uh, Domestic Violence Offender Gun Ban. Now, what is that? It uh, was a piece of legislation. It was actually an, an amendment attached to uh, an Appropriations Act. Uh, you know, when the Congress uh, puts together their, their big uh, appropriations packages. Uh, sometimes there are some uh, extra things added in. This is one of those extra things added in. It dates all the way back uh, to the 104th Congress uh, in 1996. And very basically, what this law does is it bans access to firearms by people convicted of crimes of domestic violence. If you have been convicted of a domestic violence-related crime, or if you are the subject of a restraining order, a protective order stemming from uh, domestic violence. Now, uh, we'll get into the details in a second. I, I know some of you might be saying things like, uh, what about that ex parte and all that? And uh, No, 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 no. You, don't worry, that's accounted for. Uh, the defendant, you know, whoever is, uh, whoever is prohibited from having this firearm, has an opportunity, uh, must have an opportunity uh, to participate in uh, that in the hearing, in the restraining order hearing. But what it does is it takes guns out of the hands of those who have demonstrated the capacity to commit violence against those with whom they share a home or an intimate relationship. And it's a federal, it's a federal law. And I, as I said, one of the loudest voices in support of, uh, you know, of, of the Second Amendment, of firearms, of responsible gun ownership, uh, am in the camp that supports uh, this law. Why is that and why do I bring it up today? Well, you see, 
One of the unfortunate realities that we have discovered here on this program and in the community as we have spoken uh, repeatedly uh, with people like the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, uh, like police departments throughout the state, is that uh, for a number of reasons, uh, domestic violence, uh, to include domestic violence-related homicides, uh, are on the rise this year. In fact, uh, according to uh, Liz Salas with the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, uh, they have seen a 25 to 50 percent increase in crisis calls, calls across the state, uh, depending on the communities served. Uh, Liz says, quote, there's a notable increase for requests for emergency shelter and a demand for longer stays in shelter. And there's a bit of a screening process that goes into, you know, welcoming those who are seeking this type of resource. And the claim is, at least from the Domestic Violence Coalition, that this uptick uptick is all due to COVID-related crises. Loss of employment can increase crisis tension. Isolation increases uh, barriers to report, right? So if you are in close quarters with someone uh, who has it in them to commit violence against you, and you're, you know, quarantining or isolating, it's difficult to get the word out. And all of that has contributed uh, to some some real violence. <clears throat> and it's a heartbreaking thing. Producer Amy this morning had a conversation with Liz there at the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition. And uh, th- th- they, they spoke uh, about, about this increase. Liz says that they were concerned that there would be an increase. And here she is sharing what they have learned. Definitely learned from our member providers around the state that they have seen an increase in phone calls for support and resources. So we do know that that concern is real. Liz goes on to explain and reiterate what I've shared with you as to why uh, there has been an increase in domestic violence right now. For many people, going to work or going to school provided a refuge. So if they don't have that, then they may be exposed to additional or increased abuse. Then you add on top of that any stressors people might be facing, if they have food insecurity, financial woes because of losing their employment or having a reduction in income uh, because of reduced work hours. So I think those factors play into that. Uh, anytime there's increased stressors on anyone, it can it can impact their mental health and their decision making. So that's obviously has been a concern for us. As you hear this, as you hear the rationale presented by the uh, Domestic Violence Coalition, as you hear uh, what I describe to be some of the motivating factors for this uptick, uh, don't take any of those as an excuse. There is no excuse to lay your hands on someone with whom you share a home, uh, with someone uh, with whom you have an intimate relationship, with anyone. With anyone. There is no excuse. You are small and weak if you allow those urges to overcome you. Now, with that said, you can know that there are others who are feeling the same way you are. That, uh, And I'm speaking now to those uh, who are battling some of these stresses. And when I say battling, I mean those who are on the edge uh, of maybe may injuring those with whom they share a home. You know, the advice there for you is very simple. Remove yourself from the situation. Find something to occupy your mind. Calm down. You can control your actions. 
In March, when we first started tracking, the Salt Lake City Police reported an uptick in domestic violence calls. In Salt Lake City, police sent 318 domestic violence cases to prosecutors over roughly a three-week period beginning in mid-March. That was nearly a 22% increase from the same time uh, a year earlier. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. That starts today. If you're in trouble and if you need help, there is a line for you, a phone number you can call. Get to somewhere where you can speak freely and dial 1-800-897-LINK. It's the link line, 1-800-897-5465. Here before the break is Liz Salas, again from the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, uh, speaking about getting help. There is help available 24-7 by just calling that link line, the 1-800-897-LINK. And again, anyone can call, if whether you're a victim or survivor of abuse, whether you have a loved one who's being abused or a friend or colleague, or if you're someone who's committing the abuse, like let us connect you with the resources to start moving in a more positive direction. This conversation started with a piece of gun legislation passed in the early 90s that designed uh, to protect those who may fall victim uh, to, to gun violence related to domestic violence. Uh, When we come back after the break, we'll be speaking with U.S. Attorney for Utah, John Huber, who just recently uh, secured a conviction and a sentence against someone who committed this exact crime. He'll explain to us the need for this crime and why it is designed and how it works to save lives and protect Utahns and Americans. That's ahead next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I am Lee Lonsberry. I walked through a piece of legislation which was passed in 1996, way back when. It was introduced by a Democrat, Senator Frank Lautenberg. It was known as the Lautenberg Amendment. It was tacked on to this big Omnibus Appropriations Act. It was signed into law by Democrat President Bill Clinton. It is a gun restriction. And I... Uh, as I've told you, and probably one of the louder voices in support of, of gun rights and the Second Amendment that you are going to find in this great state, and yet it is that I am also uh, very much supportive of this domestic violence offender gun ban. It has been the law on the books since its passage, and uh, and I have I've kept an eye on uh, on cases. Stemming from you know allegations of this uh, having committed this crime, and it's uh, at least from my vantage point, it's not one you see uh, come up in the news too often. And so uh, when when I do see it, I want to take the opportunity to to make it known. And unfortunately, uh, right now here in the state of Utah and across the country, we are facing some circumstances which are uh, leading to an uptick in domestic violence, uh, up to and including domestic violence-related homicides, 29 of them in the state of Utah already uh, this year. And so it was that as uh, it came across my desk just yesterday, a notice from the Office of United States Attorney John Huber for the District of Utah that he had uh, secured a conviction uh, against an individual who committed uh, just this crime and is now sentenced to 18 months in federal prison. I want to get the details on that and uh, talk a little bit about the context in uh, which we find ourselves and the circumstances that are leading to uh, an unfortunate uptake in this type of uh, violence. Uh, sir, how are you? Hey, Lee, it's great to be here. I'm doing well, thanks. T- tell me about this case. 
Well, uh, I like your preliminary remarks there. Of course, the Second Amendment, it's part of who we are as Americans. But there are those people, because of the choices they've made, the conduct they've engaged in, they just cannot have a firearm. And on the domestic violence front, we know how dangerous this is. I mean, uh, just before uh, the end of May, we had an officer in Officer Lyde in Ogden responding to a domestic violence call, and he was gunned down. These are such volatile situations. So when we have an opportunity to use federal law to bring some calm, some predictability, some safety, uh, we're going to do it. And we've done that. Uh, we don't do a lot, but this past year we've done it eight times. And this is one of those times that we're trying to address the spike in domestic violence during the COVID-19 pandemic. You have you have pursued uh, charges against uh, eight individuals who have violated this law where, uh, you know, they have either committed a domestic violence crime in the past or are under some sort of domestic violence related protective order. Uh, you, you've convicted eight individuals this year. Well, we've charged eight individuals charged. like uh, Matalolo is one of those uh, charged this year and convicted down in St. George. In fact, it was a federal prosecutor and a federal agent who saw a weekend spike in domestic violence calls down in, in, in Washington County area. And they said, well, what can we do about this? And so they actually culled through the jail records to see what firearms cases were out there that may relate to domestic violence. They found this one. This guy is one of those classic cases of a revolving door. The state court has a lot of problems in triaging risky, reckless, violent offenders and keeping those ones held. Matalolo was one of those who was just in and out, in and out. Well, we put an end to that. And sometimes federal law, that's what it takes, is federal law to put an end to the revolving door, to give safety to a victim and safety to a community because the outcome is predictable when we take the case. Looking at Matalolo's case specifically, share with us the details that ultimately led to his conviction and sentencing. Well, it also it all began, at least the domestic violence end of it, uh, uh, year and a half ago with a, a very aggressive domestic violence uh, incident that led to an arrest, led to the victim uh, seeking a protective order from the court that commands by the power of law Matalolo to stay away from the victim. And uh, he can't. And one of those provisions also is he can't possess a firearm. That's federal law. Uh, fast forward to this year, uh, a reckless encounter down in St. George. A bike patrol officer see a guy with a gun on his fanny pack, openly displayed. They want to talk to him about it because they smell and suspect uh, drugs being used. And Montalolo runs. And he actually escaped that night. But he dropped his fanny pack. He dropped his gun had all of his IDs in there, and eventually, a few weeks later, officers caught up with him and arrested him and took him into federal custody. And And that led to the end of the story yesterday with him now being sentenced to a year and a half that the community doesn't have to deal with reckless, violent behavior, and a victim is safe for sure for the next 18 months. He, he dropped he dropped his uh, he dropped his IDs or or shed them deliberately, but somehow uh, became separated from his identification, which ultimately led to his capture. You know, sometimes uh, we don't catch all the smart guys, but sometimes the guys that make mistakes, you bet we're going to catch them. It doesn't take a sharp detective to figure out that one. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Talk to me a bit about what your office is seeing related specifically to, uh, you know, COVID-related crimes. Not necessarily the fraud, but uh, as we see, and I know there's not a a ton of interaction with domestic violence and uh, in your office, I presume, but are there trends that you see uh, relating to COVID-19? Absolutely. 
at this point, you know, we can't put uh, numbers to it, but of all, all the officers I talked to, the victim advocates I talked to, they all say that COVID-19 has exacerbated the stressors that are present in a domestic violence household. And in a domestic violence household, it's all about power and control. So the abuser, and, you know, let's just say it's the man because it is. It's, uh, you know, 95 out of 100 cases, it's the man who's the abuser. So let's talk uh, truthfully about it. He's going to use misinformation. He's going to use the isolation that comes with staying home. He's going to use uh, financial stresses to further use power and control to intimidate that victim. The victim may, you know, shelters are out there. There's domestic violence shelters to help victims and their children. But they're unsure. Are they open? Are they not open? Are they accepting people? Am I nervous to go live in close quarters with people I don't know because of COVID? It has just really compounded the typical stressors in the power and control cycle of domestic violence. And it has made it more acute. And we think, we think we're seeing many more numbers than typical on domestic violence calls. This may be outside your you know, area of expertise and what you practice from day to day, but let's say there are outsiders looking in and you, uh, you, see, you may uh, observe you know, behavior like this, something of, of domestic violence being perpetrated by this isolation. Is, is there anything that an, an observer uh, may do? Oh, Absolutely. Uh, we really need to get involved. We can't just hear our neighbors yelling and screaming and, and people being hit, you know, the sounds of it. We know what that sounds like. We can't just stand by and not call the police to look into it. In fact, you don't have to call 911 if you're embarrassed about that. Just call the general dispatch number. And with this particular crime, if, if there's someone who has a firearm, and there are many people in Utah that have firearms lawfully, but if they have a firearm and you know that they're a domestic abuser and may have a protective order, may have been arrested for domestic violence assault in the past, you should call the police to look into this because there's police around the state, state, local, federal, who are looking for cases to refer to my office for possible federal prosecution. That's when we can really make a difference in a family, stop that cycle of abuse and power and control and help a victim come up with a plan for a better life. And this isn't a question of uh, clamping down on guns and getting them out of the hands of all, you know, all we can. Uh, it quite literally is under these unique COVID-19 circumstances and even in the absence of COVID-19, uh, it can and often is the question of life and death. A life and death for the victim, life and death for the children who have to live in those homes, life and death for the officer who has to respond to that scene and and bring down the emotions and, and establish peace. Firearms in the hands of domestic violence abusers who either have a conviction for domestic violence assault, even a misdemeanor, or have a protective order, they have no business having a firearm because those two things together, an abuser plus a gun equals a tragedy is going to happen. John Huber, United States Attorney for the District of Utah, thank you for your time, thank you for your work putting away the bad guys, all right? You bet. Thanks, Lee. Thank you. We'll speak again soon, I'm sure. Uh, We're going to take a break right now. And when we return, when we return, get this, live music. Live music, when is it coming back? When will we be able to return to, say, the Utah Symphony? Well, it turns out some engineers have applied some real science to the safety of live music, where to place the instruments, where to place the audience, how to configure the band. 
It's fascinating stuff. We'll speak to an engineer who has done exactly that next on Live My Kindly Lonsberry. And this is KSL News Radio. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.